Welcome back to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, I want to thank anybody who's listening. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of cool, actually, to put something up on the internet and know that somebody out there is listening. Uh, yeah, that's really cool. Thanks, guys. Or, excuse me, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So, I left you off with blackmail. Right? 1929, I believe. 28, 29. I'm trying to remember. It's okay. And we're going to jump ahead several years to 1934. And the reason we're going to do that is because after Hitchcock demonstrated a great ability to produce in the sound era with blackmail and murder, which I think I recommended last time. I still haven't seen it, but I want to. Uh, it's supposed to be pretty good. Uh, Hitch, it, Hitch hit a down period. Uh, a time when... Nothing he was doing was really working. Uh, he was taking a lot of assignments. No, nothing really good was coming out of it. And on the outside looking in, it felt like his career was dipping, was was going into a big downturn. Kind of like how I think a lot of us think about M. Night Shyamalan after he did Unbreakable and Sixth Sense and Signs. And some of us like Lady in the Water. Uh, but then he did movies like The Happening or After Earth. And we were all like, what do you, what, what, what happened to M. Night? Why can't he do what he used to do? And that's kind of what Hitch was dealing with in this period. And it took him several years. I want to take a second to, to kind of talk about that because I know, I know as an artist, sometimes it's tough. Or really any, wherever you find yourself, whatever it is that you're doing. Sometimes you go through a slump. You go through a period of time when nothing really seems to be working for you. And what do you do? Do you quit or do you keep going? you got to keep going, right? Especially if it's something that you feel you were meant to do. Hitch said something to this effect in an interview with Francois Truffaut. Now, for those of you who don't know, Francois Truffaut is one of the greatest French filmmakers of all time. He... He's someone that I really hope we can we can dive into on this podcast at some point and have him as kind of our our lecturer for a season. Uh, but he was a massive Alfred Hitchcock fan, and he interviewed Alfred Hitchcock several times. But perhaps the most well-known instance was when he interviewed him in the 60s over like a week and went right on through his career and talked about almost everything he did up to that point. And that interview has been so, so well circulated because it was published into a book. And now you can get the the original audio to download, which is actually how I've been going through that interview because it's, it's so much better. Um, that, that interview has been so influential for so many filmmakers that somebody just this year actually made a documentary with the same title as the book called Hitchcock Truffaut. Truffaut is T-R-U-F-F-A-U-T, if I remember correctly. And I really recommend going out and getting the book or downloading tapes. I'll throw some links into the show notes so that you guys can do that easily. Um, I might even throw in a link to the, uh, to the documentary. I haven't seen it yet, but I want to. Uh, because it's not about the interview. It's about all the filmmakers that it's influenced. You know, there's interviews in there from like... Martin Scorsese and Wes Anderson and all these great filmmakers that we know today. But back to my point, in that interview, he was saying, he, he told Truffaut exactly this. He said, your talent is always there. 
And I think that's really something that all of us should be encouraged by. Whatever it is that you're doing, if you're struggling with it, but you know it's something that you love to do, and you know that it's something that you're good at, your talent is always there. Anyway, a little life lesson from Hitch. I want to get back to, to what we were talking about, though. So Hitch is, is making this film called Waltzes in Vienna, I think is what it's called. There might also be several other titles that it was released under. I can't remember. And a good friend by the name of Michael Balkan, who I think I pointed this out when we did The Lodger, and he may have been involved in blackmail. I think he was. I think I told you guys to remember this name. Well, Michael Balkan was Hitch's first producer. He's the one who got The Lodger going. He shows up to the set of Waltzes in Vienna, and asks Hitch, basically, hey, what are you doing after this? Hitch says, well, I've got this script that I think is great, but nobody is producing. No, Nobody's picked it up. Nobody wants to make it. And Balkan basically said, I wasn't there, but he basically said, yeah, let's, well, when you're done with this, come over to, you know, come over and see me, and we'll see what we can do. And Balkan looked at the script, loved it, obviously loved Hitch, um, in fact, Hitch said, also in that interview with Francois Truffaut, it is to the credit of Balkan who started me as a director and started me a second time. And out of that reunion, we get The Man Who Knew Too Much. Not the 1950s American one with, with Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day. We're, don't worry, we'll get to that later. But no, this is the 1934 The Man Who Knew Too Much, made in Britain, starring Peter Lorre which I always thought was kind of cool because Peter Lorre became an international success with, with the film M, which was one of the last German Expressionist films, and we've already talked about how Hitch was influenced by German, by German Expressionist cinema. So I just thought that was kind of a cool tie-in. The Man Who Knew Too Much is one of the few Alfred Hitchcock originals, meaning that it wasn't adapted from another story. It kind of started that way, I believe it was adapted from a novel of the same title. I may be wrong about this, so if someone knows better, please come find me, and we'll talk about this. Uh, and was adapted into a story called Bulldog, Dr Bulldog Drummond's Baby. But by the time they'd worked on it and worked on it and worked on it, nothing remained of the original story other than the title, The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is, I believe, the title that they came back to after titling it Bulldog Drummond's Baby. I may be wrong about that. Um, and when I say a Hitchcock original, I don't mean that he wrote all of it. Hitchcock rarely wrote a screenplay, uh, but he would collaborate with the writers. It was actually written by Charles Bennett, D.B. Wyndham Lewis, and then also credited as scenario by Edwin Greenwood and A.R. Rawlinson, and then additional dialogue by Emlyn Williams. But... The idea was a Hitchcock idea. And because it was a Hitchcock idea, I feel like in this particular class session, we need to spend a lot more time talking about story and storytelling than about the visuals and the editing and those sorts of things. Even though those are all important and are well done in this film, I'd really like to focus on what makes a Hitchcock story a Hitchcock story. How he thought a cinematic story should be told. I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of the plot because I'm going to have to reference it occasionally. Basically, The Man Who Knew Too Much is about this couple whose daughter is kidnapped 
when they find out that their daughter's been kidnapped by people who are planning to assassinate some foreign leader. Now, the reason I only told you that is because I didn't want to give too much away. And I really, really want you guys to see this movie. It is truly phenomenal. It is a British masterpiece if you ever saw one. In fact, Guillermo del Toro likes this version more than the 1956 version. And especially in the States, most of us have only seen, if anything, the 1956 version of this film. But this 1934 version is excellent nonetheless and really deserves to be watched. Actually, while I'm on that subject, I just want to let you guys know that Guillermo del Toro is a massive Hitchcock fan. I didn't know this. I think this is so cool. Guillermo del Toro of Pacific Rim and Pan's Labyrinth, uh, et cetera, et cetera, Hellboy, uh, he loves Hitchcock. In fact, he, he studied Hitchcock intensely before he became a, a filmmaker, before he did his first film. And... He, he even wrote a book, I believe, under the uh, University of Guadalajara or something like that. Uh, and I wish I could get my hands on it. I could, but it's like $200, and I don't want to spend that kind of money. Um, <laughs> plus, it's all in Spanish. So if you don't speak Spanish, then probably not worth your time. But I would love to get my hands on that book. So if anybody knows someone with that book, please let me know. But anyway, I'm sorry. Back to The Man Who Knew Too Much and the the prototypical Hitchcock story. The first idea that Alfred Hitchcock really pushed for cinematic storytelling was, was this idea of a MacGuffin. Um, what is a MacGuffin? Well, that's kind of the point. The MacGuffin, <laughs> the MacGuffin is a term that came from an old British story, I guess, that he, he, he told many, many times in various interviews. I kind of pulled and condensed the version that's in that's in his biography, Hitch, which is also in the show notes, um, written by John Russell Taylor, I believe, or something like that. Um, and the story goes kind of like this. There's a man sitting on a train. The train's just about to leave the station. One of the last passengers comes into his little car and is carrying a very oddly shaped piece of luggage. He throws the piece of luggage up on the luggage rack. The man looks at him and says, do you mind if I ask, what is that? The man who just came in says, oh, well, that's a MacGuffin. He says, really? What's a MacGuffin? Well, MacGuffin is a piece of equipment used for, for killing lions in the Scottish Highlands. And the man says, but there are no lions in the Scottish Highlands. The man replies, well, then that's not a MacGuffin, then, is it? Kind of a strange story, kind of funny. Um, that I, I always feel kind of, kind of points us toward Hitch's sense of humor, which we'll get to later. But yeah, this, that, that story is a little abstract and, and in, in terms of practical application for storytelling, what Hitch really used was plot device or was plot events that the characters care deeply about, but the audience couldn't care less about. In The Man Who Knew Too Much, which he says had the first MacGuffin, of at least of any of his films, was the assassination of this foreign leader that I don't remember his name and I don't remember where he's from. That's how little I cared about it when I was watching the movie, as if to prove his point. Because what everybody cares about is that these parents get their daughter back, not 
about the assassination. So that's what a MacGuffin is. It's not the theme. It's not, it's not the coding over the theme. It's, it's something else. It's, it's literally a plot point that the characters have, have a vested interest in and we just don't care. Kind of an odd storytelling technique, but in a weird way, it kind of works, especially in this movie. And speaking of the assassination, I want to talk about locations. The assassination in this movie takes place in the Albert Hall. And one of the things that we find out about the assassination is that it has to be perfectly timed with a concert that's going on in the Albert Hall at the time. And that's one of the things that Hitch Hitch also felt very strongly about, that whatever your background or whatever your setting is has to be tied into in some way the story that you're telling. They can't be separate or can't not impact each other. To use a double, uh, uh, to use a double negative, whatever your background and your setting is has to be woven into the plot in a way that makes sense. So in this film, you have an assassination that's supposed to take place in a concert hall. How else do you weave it in? Well, you weave it in by by having to time the assassination attempt with the music. Makes sense to me. However, one of the most important Hitchcockian elements to this story is not the MacGuffin and not the location. It is the suspense and the way Hitchcock builds suspense in this story. Hitchcock, as many of you I'm sure know, has been dubbed the master of suspense. And the reason is because he understood suspense in a way that very few people do. And I'm going to, I'm actually going to stick with this assassination example because because that's the exact example that he used when discussing suspense with Francois Truffaut. So we're going to go back to that interview again. And I want to read this because I want to get it right. This is taken directly from the the tapes, not the book. I, I've, I've actually listened to some of the tapes and read some of the books side by side, and they're actually not exact copies, which is kind of weird. They're both worth getting your hands on, though. Anyway, back to this interview. Hitchcock said this, There's always been a dispute between suspense and surprise. There might be a bomb under this table, and we are having a very innocuous conversation. Then, boom, all of a sudden this thing goes up, and the audience are shocked. We're all injured or something. The scene has been very dull up until the time the bomb goes off. The shock will last 15 seconds, and it will ease off in a minute, two minutes, and that's that. Now we go to the other version. A bomb is under the table, and the audience are shown that they're... Excuse me. And the audience are shown that it is there at the beginning. They have been told that it will go off at one o'clock. It's quarter to one. The conversation that was so dull now becomes exciting because the audience are saying, don't talk such frivolous things. There's a bomb under the table. This way we play instead of 15 seconds of surprise, we can have 15 minutes of suspense. Which brings me up to the point of giving the audience information whenever you can. Unless your surprise is a twist. I'm going to leave that there, and I'm going to let you go find the rest of the interview. But that's the big thing. That's, that's what people talk about when they talk about building suspense. you got to build suspense with the foundation. The foundation is giving the audience information. They have to know that there is danger present or that something's lurking in the shadows. Otherwise, you don't have suspense. You just have shock. Now, Hitch used both effectively surprise and suspense 
He uses suspense very effectively in this film by telling us exactly the moment the assassination will take place. And that's that amazingly is the exact example that Hitch is that Hitch uses to get to this stump speech of his in this interview with Truffaut. He talks about giving telling the audience exactly what's going to happen before it happens. And then goes into his stump speech here. But what's important to understand is that Hitchcock also understood when to use surprise or shock. For example, in this film, he uses surprise or shock when the daughter's kidnapped. We spend so much time dealing with what the parents are dealing with that we actually, or at least I, the first time I saw it, totally forgot about the kid. And then we find out that the kid's been kidnapped. Just out of nowhere, This their daughter's been kidnapped. That's surprise. And it works. Works very effectively. And that's what Hitch is talking about when he talks about a twist. He's not talking about a twist ending like in that Shyamalan film or The Twilight Zone. He's talking about a twist in the story. When the story takes a turn that we weren't expecting. By definition, surprise and shock. However... Many times, what what I've kind of left out of of that stump speech that he gives to Truffaut and many others that he gave across several interviews uh, is that you can't forget that when you have suspense, you have to relieve it. Otherwise, the audience is not going to like you very much. Uh, he had a film that we're not going to talk about where he didn't do that. He didn't relieve the suspense. Um, I think it was... I don't remember. Crap. I want to say it was number 17, but that that might not be right. Anyway, there's this movie where this bomb's supposed to go off and the bomb goes off. Well, you didn't relieve the suspense. You just made it you just made the situation worse. And one of the ways that you can relieve the suspense at least temporarily is is with humor. In fact, that's something that Hitch talks about at length in in a very poorly titled essay, I will admit, called Women Are a Nuisance. I want to take a second so that we don't offend anybody uh, to let you know that he's this essay is not nearly as sexist as it sounds. What he's actually talking about in this essay, if I remember correctly, is, is specifically about British actresses who were so preoccupied with being these posh, gentle women, you know, these women of high society and high class that they wouldn't act outside of that realm, no matter what the character was supposed to be. And that drove Hitch nuts. But anyway, back to, back to this. Um, I'll, I'll read again exactly what, what he says. He wrote, I try to take a dramatic situation up and up and up to its peak of excitement, and then, before it is time to start the downward curve, I introduce comedy to relieve the tension. Uh, you can find that essay and many, many excellent essays in Hitchcock on Hitchcock by Sidney Gottlieb. I, I believe the also in the show notes. He elaborated in another essay called Stodgy British Pictures, also found in Hitchcock on Hitchcock by Sidney Gottlieb, specifically from this movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much, that he would intentionally set up scenes with a lighthearted nature and then turn them into dramatic scenes almost on a dime. Uh, and that way you get kind of this contrast of moods and... It emphasizes the drama or the suspense or whatever it is. 
because because of the juxtaposition there. And that's something that's really important in storytelling is that juxtaposition. You can't be one note all the way through. If you have a dramatic story, you need some humor. You need some some comedic relief. That's the reason we call it that. If it's if it's a comedy, you probably need a little bit of drama. I mean, how many comedies have you seen where there's no drama at all? None. I would I would guess. If you did, they probably weren't very good. So and 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 that's one of the things that Hitch understood. A lot of people really underestimate Hitch's sense of humor. If if you don't believe me, go pick up Hitchcock on Hitchcock and read through some of those essays. He is very funny. Uh, there's one in there called A Dinner Speech at the Producers Guild or something like that. It is hysterical. There is a movie that we are going to get to later that is a dark comedy by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, another great example of his humor is to go listen. There, there is an album on Spotify that I've been going through. I'm not. I think I'm not quite done with it. Maybe I just finished it. I don't remember. Sorry, I was just working for this last week. I'm a freelancer, so I don't remember what I've done and haven't done. I'm kind of getting back into the groove. Um, anyway, yeah, on Spotify, if you have Spotify, there's. Uh, there's an entire album of Alfred Hitchcock interviews on there. They range from a few minutes to an hour and a half. All very, very good stuff. Um, and you'll probably end up getting to some spoilers so that by the time I talk about it, you've already heard about it and say, yeah, yeah, Taylor, we know, we know, we know. Move on. But that's okay because uh, you're probably going to get it better from him than you would from me. That's all right. Um, anyway, <laughs> so in order to wrap up, um, yeah, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, very true Hitchcockian story with MacGuffins and suspense and s locations interwoven into the story and, of course, the humor and contrast and that kind of juxtaposition. And The Man Who Knew Too Much, to kind of wrap up the story that I set you up with earlier, brought Hitch back to prominence. Uh, it was very quickly recognized as a true masterpiece and is was a massive success both both critically and commercially showing that his perseverance paid off and and I think Hitch would tell any one of you that same thing that that uh, you got to keep trying because your talent is always there and the more you try the more likely you are to find something that works and anyway so yeah the man who knew too much launched Hitch into a new era of his of his British cinema period, and we're going to get to a few more of those as we keep going through Hitchcock University. I really, really recommend The Man Who Knew Too Much. I can't recommend it enough. Um, I picked up uh, the Criterion Collection Blu-ray, and it's so well restored and has that great interview in it um, from Guillermo del Toro and has pieces of interviews from... Hitchcock Truffaut, which you can get for free online, but uh, so and and has another great interview uh, from with with Hitch from Ingrid Ingrid Bergman's daughter, who he directed in several films. Ingrid Bergman, not her daughter. Um, although that interview you can get on Spotify too. Uh, but it, it it's just such a good film, so good. Um, I think you can also get it on Amazon. Uh, if you wanted to do it that way, I think you could just rent it. Um, but it's it's definitely worth your time. Please, please go watch this film. Um, 
that's it for me. Uh, thank you for listening again to Hitchcock University. Um, I have an email address if you guys want to hit me up there, hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. Pretty simple. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Yeah, okay. So it's it's Hitchcock underscore you. And then on Facebook, I made a page that some of you are probably already following just called Hitchcock University. Um, I have the links to all these things on SoundCloud. So if you go and find Hitchcock University on SoundCloud, then on the right there's an email and a Facebook and a Twitter that you can links that you can click on. Um, I really want to hear back from you guys. I feel like this is slowly getting better, um, but I really want to hear back from you guys and hear hear your thoughts on this. I want to know if any of this is making any sense. <laughs> I am not a natural speaker, which means I probably picked the wrong medium to try to reach out to people, but I figured this was the most convenient for yourself and myself for the time being. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really want to hear back from you guys. Uh, if there's something that I, that I said that didn't make any sense that needs some clarification, if there's something that, that you want to know more about and I can kind of point you in the right direction. Uh, if you just want to talk about Hitchcock, I love talking about cinema. So if you just want to message me on on Facebook or if you want to send me an email, that would be awesome. I'd love to talk to you guys about this stuff. Um, but yeah, feel free to hit me up there. Um, I'm now broadcasting on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud. Um, Probably by the time you guys have heard this, I'm I'm going to see if I can be on Google Play as well. Um, pretty much anywhere you would normally get a podcast, I would think. Um, that's all I have for you guys today, though. Uh, thanks for listening again. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for attending Hitchcock University. I'll catch you guys in two weeks.